You want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to read a passage from John chapter 4 in just a moment. It's good to see everyone out this morning, whether you're a member or a visitor. We have a few visitors with us this morning, and we're just so pleased and glad that you're here with us, and ask that after the service that you just linger for a little bit, allow us to get to know you a little bit better. We're just delighted that you're here, and... and, uh, happy to worship God with you. Um, you. You may have heard about this in uh, just on social media or maybe from the news. There hasn't been much media attention on it uh, as much as I think maybe would have been appropriate, but there was something uh, that started that was called the Asbury Revival, and it was essentially a group of students that had met at basically a, a chapel of some sort on their campus, if I'm not mistaken. And after a period of time that they were supposed to be there, they decided to stay. And then it got a little bit more uh, attendance with more students and then more people. And it just kind of became this big thing. And a lot of people were there. And, and it, it was somewhat encouraging because you saw a bunch of people, from the looks of it, just wanting to just talk more about God and you know be worshiping Him for a longer period of time. But there were also some concerns about it and and appropriate concerns that I think uh, came up. There was one uh, post on Facebook that I was scrolling through and I saw, and it was by Brother Tommy Peeler. And if you don't know him, he's a preacher. He actually just did a gospel meeting uh, near the area recently. But he put a post about the Asbury Revival, and he said this. He said, it is certainly admirable to go to worship for a short time and to end up staying for weeks. At some places, going five minutes long for worship services is a great ordeal. However, that in itself does not guarantee it is a movement from God's Spirit. And frankly, I thought that was spot on. I thought that was such an appropriate and wise thing to say. But wow, the comments that he got on that post. Being Facebook, I'm sure you already know that it is just the paragon of you know, level-headedness. Um, but the comments that he received were not, I, I don't think they were wise whatsoever. You had some replying and saying things like, why so judgy? At least people have the right spirit, indicating that they don't have the truth. But at least they have the right spirit. They have the zeal that they're supposed to. And then you had others replying, essentially saying things like, well, at least truth is being taught even if it is with the wrong spirit. And I just thought, how how can you read through the Bible, read God's will, and come to that conclusion? Can we really say that that is true worship? I just want to look at, as we said, John chapter 4 very quickly. We're not going to look at the whole discussion, but beginning in verse 19, after Jesus has been talking to this Samaritan woman at the well for some time, it, it, it says that she perceives that Jesus was a prophet. She tells him that. And continuing on in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, the reason I wanted to look at this passage very briefly is because just from this alone, what you find is that what Jesus reveals is that it doesn't doesn't seem that you can truly worship the way God wants you to without 
spirit or without the truth, the, the right spirit and the right truth. I don't think you can disconnect them. He seems to indicate you can't have one without the other. He says the true worshipers, they're going to worship in spirit and truth. And so that's really what I want to talk about this morning, <clears throat> just making that case that I don't think that you can have one without the other. But before we even start there, you have to first have the understanding of what worship actually is. What is it that we're doing? And for some here, uh, uh, there's a a few men here that have been at the last couple of monthly men's studies, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit, so this may be a bit of a review. But, But you have to start with this as a foundation, that worship at its core is coming to into the presence of God. Very simply. I say very simply, but that is quite profound. We are coming into the presence of God. Look over at Psalm 95. Psalm 95. beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 95. Here is a psalm of worship, something that the Jews would have sung through and and worshiped God with this very language. But look at what it says. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Go over to Psalm 100. Psalm 100, we're just going to read the whole psalm because it's only those five verses. But it says essentially the same thing. It gives us the same information that we need when it comes to what is worship. Psalm 100 and verse 1 beginning, as it says, it's a psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. So you have this language of the fact that we are entering his courts. We are entering his house. Does that not at least help shape the kind of mindset we're supposed to have when we do what we're doing right now. Coming to worship Jehovah, coming to worship God Almighty, the I Am. That's what we're doing. And I love what J.R. Barger has said. Again, some of you may have heard this before, but as he, as he speaks about you know, this notion of holy ground, we are here to glorify God. He, he talked about how, you know, the dirt on Mount Sinai, it was no different from the mount next door. What made that dirt holy was the presence of God. And when you come into the presence of God, you're stepping on holy ground. And as you see on the chart, it's not because this building is holy, it's because God's presence. And that only. That is the holiness. That is the the kind of respect the mindset that we're supposed to have that we are walking on holy ground and we are trying to worship him truly sincerely with the right attitude with the right kind of mindset and i think that if we had this this notion in our minds coming in every single service it would fix most issues that you see with with even sound christians today struggles as they worship god things that hinder them from worshiping god rightly I think the main problem, it seems, is that we forget what we're doing in one way or another. Maybe we don't have the truth fully. Maybe we don't have the proper spirit. In one way or another, the core of the issue is we have forgotten whose presence we're in. 
And really that's the, the focus I want to have as we just go throughout the next two points in looking at spirit and truth and how I don't think you can dis disconnect the two. But I want to start with looking at what it would look like with truth, having truth, but without the proper spirit, without having the right kind of attitude. And really, from the very beginning, I just want to indicate, it, it's, it's clearly not right in God's sight. Over in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. Look at what the Lord says to His people, to the Israelites. In, in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13 beginning, it says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Well, in verse 14, you have this judgment that's going to come. That's how he's going to deal with them marvelously. And why is it? They're, they're, they're worshiping God, Right? They're, they're partaking in some, of the, in some of the sacrifices that they're supposed to. And they're even saying the things that are correct things to say. They're saying the appropriate things to say. But what is it? It's just mere lip service. And they're only going through the motions. That's what he means when he says just going through traditions learned by rote. You're just going through the motions. You don't mean what you're doing. And ultimately, it comes down to the fact that they have removed their hearts from the worship. They've removed their hearts far from God. That's the main issue. So you can have, you know, the Jews' excuse, they could say, uh, again, that they've done all these sacrifices, and do you hear all the things that we're saying? Let me just ask, does truth matter if we remove our hearts from what we're doing, if we remove our hearts from God? I think that there are a few ways that we do this even today. It may not, be the, it, it may not look the exact same as the Jews, you know, even before the first century. But there are ways that we show this very clearly in our worship service. Now, just a couple of examples up on the screen before you, but you can just look at this first fellow here. I mean, let me ask, does that look like proper worship? Let me ask another question. This fellow that's just sleeping while everybody else is paying attention. Do you think that he has the mindset, do you think that he is thinking, right now I am in the presence of God? I don't think so. You can't have that notion in your mind and think, and, and, and even remotely think, oh, you know what, I think I'm going to take a little nap. I understand that sometimes we can get sleepy. I mean, I've talked to Dylan and McKenna several times since they had their baby, just trying to prep and trying to figure out how I'm going to deal with the lack of sleep. It gets hard sometimes because we have a hard week. And I understand that. But again, I, I don't want that to, to be my excuse. I don't want that to be my reasoning to, to put down the atmosphere of what I'm doing. I'm on holy ground, and I'm not just going to fall asleep for any reason. I want to remember whose presence I'm in. Well, you have another example up on the screen. What about this fellow here? Everyone else is paying attention, but what's he doing? He's scrolling through Instagram. He's texting family. He's just on his phone. I will just say, I know that there are several people. <laughs> I know that there are several people here that use their phone for Bible apps. I understand that, and I think that that our you know iPads and, and phones can be helpful in that regard. But I will say I think that they can be a great distraction as well, a great temptation at the same time. Because what happens when you're on that Bible app? Well, here's a notification that came up. Somebody liked something on Twitter, or there's a new TikTok of somebody that I just, that I follow. You know how easy it is to fall into that temptation because oh, I wasn't looking for it, but it just came up. Why am I going to allow that distraction? <laughs> Hopefully, you know, I'm at least going to put it on do not disturb so that won't happen. But I will say, 
While there are some who use their phones during service for, for Bible apps, that's not everybody. There are some people who are using it just to text their family members, text their friends, because they just can't wait till the hour is done. Maybe you're playing games on your phone. And I'm not talking about the little kids. I'm talking about Christians. Let me ask you, if you're, if you're playing Mario Kart on your phone, do you remember or have you forgotten whose presence you're in? I think we've forgotten, haven't we? Because I would not dare approach God in that way. But we, but we show that we are approaching Him in that way, in such a nonchalant and cavalier way. What, what have we done when we're just looking through social media during the worship service? And I'm not just talking about the preaching, I'm talking about the singing, I'm talking about the prayer, I'm talking about the Lord's Supper, everything that we do. While we're here, if we are, are, are guilty of these things, we have removed our hearts from God. Let me ask you something. Wives, if it was you know, your 10-year, 20-year, 50-year anniversary, and your husband said, I'm going I'm to take you someplace nice, I'm going to take you someplace fancy, specifically for this milestone, this anniversary of ours. Takes the time off and everything. You guys get to the table, and you are you know, just, just scrolling through this wonderful selection of delicious you know, desserts and all kinds of fancy foods. And you look up, and your husband is on his phone. And then you continue to go through the menu and you look up again, 10 minutes later, he's still on his phone. Let me ask you something. If you're out there, he took the time off and he's brought you to, to, to this wonderful place specifically to celebrate your anniversary. But is his heart in it if he's on his phone the whole time checking fantasy football? Or checking even work emails the whole time? Would you feel like his heart is with you? No. No, no, no one, no one would agree. No one would think that, that someone is really in it if all they're doing is just passing their time thinking about something else, showing where their heart truly is, not, not here. And so we need to be careful that we are not offering vain worship in these same ways. Well, it's not only vain worship to have truth without the Spirit, without the proper attitude, but I will just add, we can't trick God into believing that we have a faith that's not there. Remember what it says in Galatians chapter 6, after all these things that Paul has talked about, of how spiritual people are to live, Christians are to live, bearing one another's burdens, and making sure that we are carrying our own load as well. But what does he say in verse 7? God is not mocked. What you sow, you will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap from the Spirit. But you can't trick God into thinking that there's a faith that's not really there. I wonder, um, I have Psalm 51 there. Psalm 51 is, is a psalm that David writes after his sin with Bathsheba. And not just his sin with Bathsheba, but the sin of killing Uriah the Hittite, her, her husband. Each sin... When you look in the law, the penalty is death. The physical penalty is, is death. Can you imagine David going through, committing those kinds of sin, and trying to come before God with this language? Do you think that if David had only merely gone through the motions and saying that he has a broken and contrite heart, those are the right things to say. But what if he was just going through the motions and saying that, and he was just like, oh... At least, if I say this, God will just go ahead and forgive me. But he, doesn't, he had no remorse whatsoever. Do you think that God still would have saved him? Do you think that God still would have relented of that penalty? No! Why? Because his heart would have been far removed. But that's one of the things that makes David a man after God's own heart. He meant it. And when he, wanted to, and when he repented, he felt that godly sorrow. And when he said that he had a broken and contrite heart, when he said, I, I want you to create in me a clean heart, that's, that's something that would be Hard, difficult, that's something that would hurt. He meant it. 
And so we, I'd say, let's say we're not going to trick God into thinking that we have the proper heart when we don't. We can't just go through the motions thinking that that's going to be enough. Yes, maybe you're present. Yes, maybe you're here. But have you prepared to be in His presence throughout the week? There are some people who think that, you know, you can have a weak life where you're just ungodly and unrighteous and act like everybody else like the rest of the world, and then you have a Sunday life where you are holy and respectable and you're upright, and everyone sees that. Let me just say, even if everyone in this building was tricked into thinking that, you know, your whole life looked like what you looked like on Sunday, God is not mocked. Look over at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2? Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Look at the dedication involved here. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Can it possibly be good and acceptable and perfect if in the last minute we're trying to you know, clean everything up, make sure it looks spotless when it's really not? Let me tell you something. If something's not spotless, it's incredibly difficult to clean it up and make it look pure and white as snow, especially at the last minute. And when he talks about being that, not, not, just, not just seeing the sacrifice and what it's supposed to mean to us, but being a living sacrifice, acceptable. That's not just on Sundays. That's on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so we don't get to just have a week life and a Sunday life. That's not how this works. God is not mocked. You go beyond that, you know... Some people would say, at least I'm here. At the very least, at least I'm present. But is it only a chore for you? Do you look at it and think, I just can't wait to get past this sun. I just can't wait to get past this hour. The Jews observed the Sabbath every, every, every seventh day, and they hated every second of it. You see that especially in Amos. Amos says, you're waiting for the Sabbath to be over. Why? So that you can get back to your dishonest gain. Now, it may not be that we are the exact same, but we're just waiting for dishonest game. But are you waiting for this to be over? I, I tell you, it's hard to imagine that someone who understands whose presence they're in, God's, that they would just be waiting on the edge of their seat. I can't wait to be out of it. What a shame. What a shame, because that's not the proper attitude. We've rem if that's the attitude, then that person has removed their heart far from God. Yes, they have the truth. A little bit of it. But do they really? without having that attitude. Well, on the other side of that, can we have the Spirit without the truth? Back over in John chapter 4, just from the very beginning of where we started, John chapter 4 and verse 22, Jesus makes so clear that you can't. In John 4 and verse 22, look at what he says. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And she asks about, you know, worshiping on Mount Gerizim and they were, the, the Samaritans were worship there because that's where the blessings of obedience were spoken from while they were reading through the law. And so they, they even had maybe some, some decent reasoning there. Oh, that makes sense to worship there. But was that what God had said? Is that what God had prescribed? No. And Jesus says that you don't know what you worship. He doesn't try to coddle her and say, oh, well, at least you're trying your best. No, he says more was required. And so truth absolutely does matter. You can, you can only worship what you know. 
And I just ask from, from the beginning, if, if you don't know God, what are you worshiping? Certainly not Him. And if it's not Him, it's going to be an idol. Whether that be myself, or someone else, or something else. It's not Him. If we don't know Him. Now, going beyond that, back over in Isaiah, especially in Isaiah, over and over again, He, he makes this, this case about how the Jews, how the Israelites, they just... They either go through the motions or they just act like they don't need to do everything that God has asked of them to do. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11 beginning, it says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your, uh, or rather going down to verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even, the, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. And why? Your hands are covered with blood. So here are people that could have said, at least, at least we have the right attitude. At least we have the zeal. Look at everything that we're trying to do. But are you doing what God has said fully? Because what have they done? They, they came with blood on their hands. And that's not going to be good enough. And I love, and, and, and just, just, just to be clear, God does not say, I hate the solemn assembly. What he says is, at the end of verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. You don't get to have one without the other. You don't get to have truth without the Spirit and vice versa. You have to have them both. You can't have blood-stained hands and come to worship God. Jesus would use this in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9 as he's talking to the Pharisees, making the, essentially the same point. It, it didn't look the same for the Pharisees, sure, but they still suffered from the same problem. Your worship is vain. And why? Because you have made the traditions of men like the doctrine of God. And And... As he uses that to talk to the Pharisees, I just I can't imagine the, some of the excuses they would say. Oh, sure, well, we're not doing what God wanted fully, but at least the Spirit is there. Is it? As Jesus mentions that in Matthew chapter 15, he, you know, he says, you're supposed to honor your father and mother. But what have the Pharisees done? They say, oh, well, what I would have given to my mother and father, I've already devoted that to God, so I, looks like I can't honor my father and mother. They were trying to get out of it. When they knew what they were supposed to do, God wasn't unclear. They were trying to act like it. And so he brings this quotation up from Isaiah saying, He spoke of you. You know, th this sounds like people today who, who, whether they're Christians or not, people that talk about the need to assemble, or rather the need not to assemble. They say, I don't have to assemble. And why is that? Because I've got the zeal. At least I have the right kind of spirit. What is that neglecting? Well, at least one passage in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 where God says that we're not to forsake the assembly and there are a whole host of other passages that we could look at about the need, the expectation of God that we are to be together and worship Him and come together as an assembly. But you, how, how can you have the proper zeal if you're not willing to go and worship God the way He wants you to? You can't say you have the right spirit when God has said something He desires and you say, but I don't desire it. That's not the right spirit. That is not the right attitude. 
And so you can't have spirit without the truth in that way. I would just add to that over in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as, as Jesus is speaking about anger and you know how, how you know, they say that though, if you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. What does he say right after that in verse 23? Therefore... If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are, at, or while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. How important is it that when you know that your brother has something against you, how important is it? He says, before you offer this gift at the altar, before you worship, you go make things right. Why is that? Because you can't have the proper spirit when you're clearly and willfully neglecting other things that God desires. He wants us to be at peace with one another. He wants to be at unity with one another through Him. And He says it's so important that if you try to worship Me and you know that you have wronged someone, and you have not made things right willfully, be careful. Because what you have done is you are worshiping. You went ahead and gave the gift at the altar. You've ignored what God has said. And so, can we say that you can have the Spirit without the truth? I don't think you can. You need to have them both in unison. But with all that being said, I would like to just end with, with the notion that it is, it is only truth that can cultivate the correct and desired kind of attitude and spirit. There are people that really do struggle with having the right kind of emotions. And I, I, believe me, I understand that. I have struggled with that before. And, and I, even while I have been preaching in the last five years, even as I have been doing the job, this is the, my favorite job I've ever done, and there have been moments where I have needed to, to reevaluate, take a step back, and try to figure out, I, I, I don't have the right attitude, I need to cultivate it. The question is, how do you do that? I'm telling you the only way that's possible is through this word. Over in Colossians chapter 3 very quickly. Colossians chapter 3. In verse 15. Remember how he starts in Colossians chapter 3 saying that there are some things that you need to put off. Attributes and characteristics of the world. That's a part of the old man that's put to death. And when we are created in Christ's image, we are to put these things on. Love. Compassion, all of these things. How does this end? How does he conclude this? In verse 15. So, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And so, how does he conclude all this, saying things you need to put on? How are you to change? Whatever you do in word or deed, what has God said? It is the only thing that can cultivate love when it's not there. It is the only thing that can break a hard heart when it is stubborn and is unwilling to bend or break. And, and I go through all this just to say, I, I do think that there are times where, where, where sound Christians, even strong Christians, struggle with having the right kind of emotions. And so 
to that, what I would say is the same thing that I have tried to do every single time, and I'm telling you, every time I've done it correctly, it's worked. Just for me personally. But what the scriptures say is it will work if you're doing this the right way. And how do you do it the right way? Start reading. And then you keep reading. And then guess what? You read more, and you don't stop. As soon as we stop, as soon as we stop looking here, we're, it's finished. We've lost. And why is that? Because... <laughs> Jesus makes this case over and over again throughout his ministry. It's the truth. It's Jesus. It's his name. He is the only thing that can cultivate the desire and love that we want for God's will. What is it? The truth will set you free. It is only the word, the word of life. Jesus. It is only the word that can break maybe stubbornness, hard-heartedness, bitterness, hatred, malice, anger with brethren. I'll tell you, the world has all kinds of ways that you can do that. Without the truth, it doesn't matter how bad you want to break it. You're not going to. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. What does living by faith mean? It means you seek His will first and foremost and you act on it post-haste. When you see what He has prescribed, you don't hesitate. You don't wait. You act on it. That's living by faith. Now, you may be a Christian. You may have been a Christian for some time. The question is, have you been doing this? Have, maybe you have struggled. I, and I would just ask, if you haven't been doing this, living by faith in this way, if you haven't been doing this in spirit and in truth, why not? Because we can usually pinpoint the reason. And once you do, come back to the Word and let it guide you. Come back to the Word and let it break the bad habit. Break the sin that may be in our hearts. That's what it's going to take. Let it mold you. If you're not a Christian, I think the same thing applies to you. It takes the Word to save us. It takes the Word to fashion us. You must submit to Jesus, the Christ, the King, and His decree. That's His will, His words. If you have this kind of attitude, if you are willing to say, I am ready to bow and submit myself to Him completely, then you are ready to become a Christian. Are you willing to submit to Him fully? Get rid of everything He says to get rid of. Pledge your allegiance to Him. Confess His name. And that you will be with Him till the day of your death. And to be baptized into His death to rise in newness of His life. You can have salvation this very morning. And so if you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let your need be made known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.